Good morning, Vermont. On this Tuesday, January 23rd edition of Vermont Viewpoint, we dive into some pretty rugged stuff, but we also include a dollop of entertainment just to mix in. Uh, coming up in just a moment, we speak with Heather Holter and Carolyn Hampson uh, of the Vermont Domestic Violence Fatality Review Commission, which issued a report last week about this terrible and tragic aspect of our society. This is something we need to talk more about. Um, we also renew our discussion with State Auditor of Accounts Doug Hoffer about the tax increment financing issue, uh, especially the one in Burlington, and the reported problems that the city and other communities have had using it properly. We will lighten things up just a bit. We also plan to have Matt LaRocca, the creative chair and special projects conductor at Vermont Symphony Orchestra. He'll be, he will be with us to discuss a special project happening at a couple of locations around the state, including one on the grounds of a facility that also includes a dispensary. And finally, we speak with a rabbi who works in Vermont's Jewish communities, and we will speak to her about how this group views the October 7th attack, the response from the IDF, how they view the actions of Prime Minister Netanyahu and the United States, and what has been... what what the United States has been doing, what it should be doing to reduce the violence in the region. Uh, but uh, uh, first, uh, the Vermont Network Against Domestic and Sexual Violence estimates that each year there are more than 40,000 victims of domestic violence or sexual violence in Vermont, though research indicates that most survivors do not report abuse. Now, most of the abuse victims survive, some don't. But the impact on victims of this kind of violence means that in most cases they are forever changed, not in a good way, and it's worth noting that not all victims are women. The Vermont Council on Domestic Violence and the State Attorney General's Office has come together with the Domestic Violence Fatality Review Commission and has published a report that came out last week focusing on those victims that did not survive. Their report focuses on those fatalities that occurred in 2022. Uh, so uh, Carolyn Hansen and Heather Holter join us now. Ladies, welcome. Thank you. Thank you so much. Um, I do want to ask, um, uh, the report that you and the commission worked on deals with those people who, who perished as a result of domestic violence or, or sexual violence in 2022. Um, how many were there and, and how does that number compare to other years? Um, so uh, there, <clears throat> there were six domestic violence fatalities. Uh, in 2022, if I'm not mistaken, just pulling out. <laughs> um, and uh, we had quite a few fatalities in general in Vermont last year, so that number is growing. Um, and uh, and I think that in terms of how it compares to other years, having a larger overall number of homicides yeah. has kind of, um, in some ways. I mean, not falsely, because numbers are numbers. Uh, we have such small numbers that um, any relatively small change um, makes the percentage look a lot um, like a big difference. So, um, so the percentage of uh, overall homicides that were domestic violence related is smaller this year than other years, 
Um, but uh, I think in part that's due to the high number of overall homicides. Yes, I would agree with that, Heather. I mean, there were six domestic violence-related homicides in 2022, and um, out of 26 homicides. So the six is fairly common to the number that we generally have, but we saw a lot more uh, drug-related violence last mm-hmm. year than we have in the past in Vermont. So the overall number of homicides is quite a bit higher than it has been in the past. Right. But generally, if you go all the way back to 1994, which is when we began keeping these statistics, yep. about half the homicides that occur in Vermont are domestic violence related. Wow. Okay. Um so a death occurring in a situation like this is probably connected to repeated bouts of violence in in one form or another and that and that is probably connected to something else what is that something else or is it am i wrong about that i'm i'm not sure we could say it's connected to repeated bouts i think we've seen lots of situations in the time that the fatality review has been looking at this where folks have had very little involvement with police or with um the courts and really the homicide was the first time the police were even involved. And I oh, think really? that's really okay. important for people to remember yeah. because domestic violence is, and sexual violence very underreported. It's sometimes just not um, safe. Sometimes the safer thing for people to do is to sometimes not report in certain situations and at certain times. There may become a time where that's something that they can avail themselves of, but it's really important to remember that not everyone who's experiencing domestic violence is in a position to take an act, to remove themselves from the situation in that time. Right. So we're talking about codependent relationships here. Um, I think we're talking about it being uh, lots of things. Like, I mean, it's hard when... It's hard when you love someone to think about, uh, and they're telling you they can change, to think that they won't. Um, so maybe that feeds into a little bit of what you're saying. But also yeah. you think about how we're connected with people and how much we depend on them and how much our lives is intertwined with them, how much our economic situation is, is dependent upon the people that we live with. And so it's, it's, I think it's maybe a bit broader than that. Yeah. And I mean, what I would add to that, I mean, it's hard to um, describe this in a in a simple way, but I think the simplest way to describe it is um, I often think about um, the way in which coercive control plays a really big part in abusive relationships. And so um, emotional or psychological abuse usually is the first sort of kind of abusive behavior mm-hmm. that someone who's using um, uh, abusive tactics in a relationship begins to use. So it really um, begins in a way that's kind of almost hard to see for um, the victim or survivor in that relationship. And it often doesn't happen until the relationship has been ongoing for a uh, period of time. Yeah. Um, and so, as Carolyn said, people, you know, may be quite connected and, um, and in love before that abusive behavior escalates to the point that someone might actually say, oh, wow, this is abusive behavior. And by that time, um, the behavior of the person who is, trying to exert power and control over the other person um, 
you know, there's a lot of groundwork that's been laid in terms yeah. of emotional abuse. Right. Okay. Uh, 802-244-1777 is the number to call if you would like to ask a question about domestic violence uh, to either Carolyn Hansen or Heather Holter. Um, I, had, I do want to ask... Um, uh, is there a typical incident profile? Do all these things start the same way or a similar way? Um, so you mean domestic violence, yeah, homicides? Right. Yeah. Um, the one thing I would say is that um, I don't think there's um, – I mean, they're all different. Um, the one thing I would – take the opportunity to highlight is that um, you'll see in the report that we talk about murder-suicide. And um, I think two things in the report. One thing that the report doesn't adequately address just because of the way statistics work and because of what we can and can't know about relationships when we review them is that... um, the most often an abuse, uh, I'm sorry, a domestic violence homicide often happens when the survivor or victim in that relationship is trying to leave. So when that person begins to make efforts to leave or end the relationship, it is actually the most dangerous time for that person and makes the possibility of a domestic violence homicide happening much more likely. Um, and so that would be one thing that I would highlight is often in our statistics, because we can't always know if, for instance, a couple was starting to talk about divorce and didn't tell anyone. You know, we can't always know when we review whether the victim had been trying to leave mm-hmm. so that so that, you know, we can't necessarily put a number on that. But most often when we dig into a case review and talk to family members, we find that the victim was trying to leave the relationship. And at that point, um, the person who is um, being abusive is just sort of about to lose everything. And if you combine that with mental health issues or any thoughts of suicide, becomes very dangerous and more likely for a murder-suicide to occur. Wow. Okay. Uh, that um, is really revealing. That makes uh, a, a, a whole lot of sense. Um, and so if, the, if, if you have a person uh, right now who is in a, um, an abusive relationship and hasn't made any outward signs yet of saying, okay, I think I'm going to get out of here, um, would you say to make a clean break, get out and leave everything behind if that's what you have to do to, to get out to make a clean break? Or, or am I wrong about that? Well, you know, that's a very common assumption that people think that what you need to do is just get out of there right away. But as I mentioned earlier, sometimes that's not a safe option. And I think the first thing I would say is that if you know that somebody is in a domestic violence situation, Listen, um, they're going to know best what they need and what kind of help will allow them. It's, you can't, you can't figure out what will keep someone else safe, but most survivors have a very good idea of what they need to keep themselves safe. The other thing I would say is if there's a firearm in the home, um, if you are able to encourage the person to remove the firearm from the home, that removing access to a firearm is something that it will definitely reduce lethality risk, and we know that. And so if we can make sure that people who are being abusive don't have access to a firearm, we are in a much better place to prevent domestic violence homicide. 
Is there a segment of the population that is simply more prone to abusive behavior? I ask because from 1994 to 2022, according to your report, Chittenden County, with a population of 169,000, had 18% of the domestic violence homicides. Rutland County, with a population of 60,000, had 17%. Uh, I'm, 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 you know, making a judgment here that Chittenden is is wealthier, probably better educated overall, or is there more going on here? How do you, how do you when you see those numbers, what 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 comes into your head? You know, I I don't know what those numbers mean, um, and I do think it's important to know that there isn't sort of a profile for someone who engages in domestic abuse. I mean, it crosses over all ethnicities, races, socioeconomic backgrounds. Um, there's really not a good predictor of who may engage in abusive behavior. I think that's one of the one of the tough things. You know, you don't know domestic abuse when you see it from the outside. Um, People who are experiencing it certainly over time will realize that they're in an abusive relationship. But these could be people who otherwise are, we find, very pro-social, able to, um, you know, abide by social cues and otherwise conduct themselves in a very um, often charismatic and, and lawful way. And, and you can kind of see how... You know, if you are a person who is looking for a partner, someone who ends up being abusive at first, we often hear, was um, an excellent father figure, an excellent partner, an excellent um, companion. And it's only as the relationship goes on and the person who is abusive begins to exert more power and control in the relationship that it, that it becomes apparent that that's that's a factor in the relationship hmm. so it's it's not really something you can see from the outside or recognize i think in the way you're describing right okay um other contributing factors to domestic abuse in general poverty drug use alcoholism Emma, uh, what what do you think i might flip that around and, and, you know, I think sometimes we look at these things, we're saying, oh, so many people are, um, have substance use disorder. So many people are, um, having trouble with trauma, um, kids that are not behaving in school. And domestic violence is a root cause of a lot of those things. A lot of people who are dealing with trauma, they turn to substances as a way to cope. A lot of people who are homeless have lost their housing because of domestic violence. A lot of kids who who are not behaving in school or having trouble regulating behavior, they are experiencing domestic violence at home and it's causing trauma and it's causing all kinds of societal ills. And I think domestic violence is, it's a, it's a public health crisis without a sense of urgency. Wow. Um, that's, that's quite a statement, a public health crisis without a sense of urgency um, because it's, Invisible to most of us. Is that right? Yeah. Yeah, I, I would absolutely agree with that. And I think that, um, you know, as Carolyn said, because we are able to see some of the, the impacts or the sort of co-occurring, um, outward, um, 
behaviors that result from it, it makes it a little bit more invisible and a little mm. bit more difficult to uncover that. What are can you can you give us some 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 things that you see as red flags um, when you are um, maybe maybe this would be you know between you know some other couple that you might know at a cocktail party or something um, is uh, can you can, is there a common set of red flags that people can use to identify to think wow this person this friend of mine might need some help um, what do you think um, I think you know every situation is different but I would say that in order to answer that question, um, particularly if you have a friend who you notice um, is able to spend less time with you or you have a family member who, um, after being in a relationship for a period of time, uh, ends up not being um, coming to as many family gatherings or... Um, the reason I talk about this is that isolation is one of the biggest red flags. So... Clearly, when people get into a relationship, they want to spend a lot of time together. You know, that's that's pretty normal, sure. right? Romantic right. behavior. But over time, what often happens in an abusive relationship is that the person who's using power and control in the relationship is is sort of cutting their partner off, the victim off from people who may, you know, be able to see more clearly what's happening uh -huh. from people who may be their support system. So I think that that isolating behavior is probably one of the number one warning signs. Um, so Carolyn said a little while ago, uh, you know, if you think you know someone who's in an abusive relationship, listening and being, um, being just present and sort of persistently and gently there for people and non-judgmental because we know that um, leaving an abusive relationship can be a very dangerous uh, thing to do. So again, like, you know, you want to, you want to be, um, you want to be present to help people problem solve and listen to them uh, without, without pushing, I think. Yeah, that's really the biggest thing you can do to prevent that isolation. It, it gets hard sometimes because people can frustrate you. You don't understand what's going on and you think, okay, I just don't want to be part of this situation anymore. Maybe the family starts to cut the person off or close friends. And that's the worst thing that can happen is to get cut off that way. I mean, other things that we've seen is monitoring and surveillance of people checking in. Maybe they get, you know, 10 phone calls from their uh, partner a day at work, um, asking them where they are, um, believing that they're having an affair and uh, thinking that they're cheating on the other person. I mean, these are all just some examples. There's there's lots of things that go into it. But domestic violence essentially is a power and control issue more than a violence issue. Okay. Um, how much does a relief from abuse order help in preventing, you know, any incident of abuse? Um, in, you know, in your relief from abuse order stats, it seems clear that not every request is granted by a judge. Um, what has to happen there? Well, you have to, you have to be able to prove that you're entitled to an order. Um, but, I'm really glad you brought that up because it is a tool that can be used by people to help 
with that imbalance of power. And one of the most powerful things that can happen with a relief from abuse order is a court is telling this person that they can't have contact with you, perhaps if they've been drinking, they can't come within 300 feet of your house, they can't have um, unsupervised contact with your children. Um, a big one is removal of firearms, requiring the person not to have firearms. So there are a lot. there's a lot of good relief that's available through the abuse prevention process, and it's just up to people as to whether that's the right step for them. Hmm. I also would quickly say that a um, a temporary relief from abuse order uh, can really help in the ways that uh, Carolyn just described. It doesn't have to be uh, a final order in place for a year. So yep. when you look at those statistics and see, oh, not every temporary order becomes a final order, that doesn't mean that having that temporary order wasn't um, a really useful tool to create safety in a really important time. Right. So. Right. Um, all right. So let's uh, we're we're, get, we're coming close to the end here. Um, can you talk about a couple of recommendations? A hotline number. Absolutely. So I wanted to make sure to let people know that um, you can call um, the Network Against Domestic and Sexual Violence. Uh, there's a statewide hotline, and it's 1-800-228-7395. And uh, so 228, uh, 800-228-7395 or the Vermont Network um, online. Um, the other thing I wanted to let people know about is that Vermont is – um, has a wonderful project right now called the Spark, and uh, so you can um, you can call the Spark um, hotline or look it up if you are someone who is using violence and want to get help and talk to someone about that. So that that the Spark is a resource for people who are using violence in their intimate partner relationships. All right. Well, thank you. Uh, uh, thank you both. Uh, our, our thanks to uh, Heather Holter, co-director of the Vermont Council on Domestic Violence, and Assistant Attorney General Carolyn Hansen. Um, we appreciate your time this morning, and um, we thank you uh, for your advice to the public about this very difficult topic. This is Vermont Viewpoint on WDEV. Welcome back to Vermont Viewpoint on WDEV. I'm Brad Wright. Well, it's tax time uh, pretty soon. If uh, you haven't thought about uh, your taxes, it might be time to start. Uh, tax issues can <laughs> really make one's eyes glaze over because so much of it is complicated and just not the easiest stuff to understand. Uh, and that, uh, and nothing about your personal taxes is as complicated, I don't think, as, um, as what happens with tax increment financing districts, uh, which a number of Vermont municipalities have used to facilitate the development of infrastructure projects. They borrow from a piece of the municipality's property tax revenue growth that would otherwise go to the state education fund to pay off the debt incurred by a project. But running the numbers is a complex project uh, in tax increment financing and uh, in and of itself. And uh, State Auditor Doug Hoffer is here to explain how he believes the city of Burlington has messed this up. Uh, Doug, welcome back. Thank you, Brad. Good morning. Good morning. Um, so le first, let's identify uh, which 
project, which infrastructure project in Burlington uh, that we're talking about here? Yeah, uh, Burlington has two TIF projects. One is the Waterfront TIF, and we did that audit a, a year and a half ago. This one is called the Downtown TIF and is generally uh, close to or, and including the Main Street Corridor. So they're very different. They're close, but they're different. And the infrastructure involves streets, sidewalks, ultimately water and wastewater, and some other related issues. Okay. So can you explain uh, the situation here with the tax increment financing um, in, a, in a general sense so people have an understanding of, of what's happening? Well, I thought your summary was fine. What happens is the city, any city who, who gets approval for a TIF from the Economic Progress Council, they're a statewide entity that uh, administers this program on behalf of the Agency of Commerce. And uh, in, in the course of getting approved, uh, VEPC approves not only the projects that you propose, but the costs of those projects. And then you have to submit a financing plan. And that's what Burlington did. And they have an approved financing plan. And then the city did something that is not unusual for the state or other good-sized cities, and that is a type of financing that produces what's called a premium, uh, an extra increment of dollars that the city can then use for whatever purposes it chooses, in this case, undoubtedly for additional infrastructure. But that has the uh, unintended or but not unacknowledged uh, result of increasing the interest costs and beyond what was anticipated by VEPSI. In this case, it's a lot. Over the course of the life of the bonds, uh, it will produce, uh, or not produce, but require an extra $8 million in interest payments. And that was not approved uh, by VEPSI. Uh, it was not anticipated by VEPSI because the city didn't mention that they were going to go the premium route. So uh, there, there was a lot of talk uh, from some quarters, including the mayor, about how we got it wrong. Well, we didn't get it wrong. We never denied uh, the city's authority to use a, a financing method like the one they did, which includes the premium. All we said was uh, that they didn't get approval from Betsy in their financing plan for that, and that's a fact. Uh, and he had to acknowledge that, and he also acknowledged that he will be going back to Betsy to ask, in effect, for a get-out-of-jail-free card. <laughs> um, all right. Uh, how is it possible for the city to draw down more money than was authorized by Pepsi. Well, as I say, this type of bonding uh, allows the buyers of the bonds to effectively say, we'll pay you more, uh, which gives the city more capital right up front as soon as the bonds are sold, but you're going to have to give us more interest than you would otherwise for just a regular geo bond. And as I say, it's not uncommon. The state does it uh, regularly. It produces more money, but it can produce uh, more obligation in debt. All right. But that's not the whole audit. There were other elements of the audit report, including sure. a mistake uh, w with regard to a very substantial new building that had nothing to do with TIF, uh, I don't think. Uh, the Champlain College housing down on St. Paul Street, which also includes some restaurants on the ground floor, and uh, they were paying an annual development fee that the city was required to contribute towards the TIF or make available for, for payment, and they didn't uh, for all the years that we looked at, and they ended up owing a million dollars. So rather than having the city come up with a million dollars, what Pepsi did as a result is say, okay, city, you know, normally you get to keep 75% of that new tax increment from the TIF district that you generate uh, instead of going to the Ed Fund, but now we're going to drop it to 69%. We think that will true things up over the life of the bond. 
Uh, but that means, of course, uh, as you mentioned, uh, $8, $8 million more in interest payments over the life of the bonds that uh, Burlington's taxpayers will be stuck with? No, that's the thing about TIF that people don't understand, okay. that most people don't understand. Uh, when uh, the city borrows, any city, any TIF town borrows money to pay for infrastructure improvements, the expectation is that the area defined as the TIF district will have extra grand list growth. The value of the properties in that area will grow more than it was anticipated. Therefore, there will be more property tax, both for the city and for the education fund. But as that TIF district produces, if it, if it all works, additional tax revenue, most of it is held by the city to pay off the debt. So that means the money that would have gone to the Ed Fund does not, and it's a lot. The nice. Joint Fiscal Office, which is the you know analytical arm of the legislature, has done some very interesting reports on this over the years. And, you know, they're now predicting that over time, since there's so many of these things, and some of them, like Burlington, are pretty large, that it's basically shorting the Ed Fund 6 to $10 million a year. That means everybody else in the state is paying for Burlington's infrastructure. Well, that's going to... not just Burlington. It's all the other TIF towns. Okay. So that would that would make uh, uh, people in the legislature um, uh, uh, chafe a little bit uh, about... No, uh, actually, like uh, well, in some cases, yes. In other cases, people say, why can't my town have a TIF? Why can't all God's children have a TIF? You know, because <laughs> it allows the mayor or the town manager to say to people when they go out to the ballot for approval... This won't cost you anything. See, I, that's why, you know, the mayor said one thing that's true, although he mischaracterized it. He said, I have a campaign against TIF. That's not true. I have shared my thoughts about the program with the legislature over the years, and one is that it's very expensive. A huge amount of interest payments for all the TIF towns, over $100 million. And having said that, I don't think there's any question that most people would agree the state could play a role, a, a good role, in helping towns where they haven't had much luck uh, developing property in and around the downtown area, but this approach to it I don't think is optimal. Having said that, my views about the program and its effectiveness and cost-effectiveness have nothing to do with the results of an audit. Our audits are done to generally accepted government auditing standards, and for every 30-page report that we put out, there's a couple of hundred pages of work papers. There's not a word in those documents that isn't supported by evidence. So I, I know he was disappointed in the results, some of the results of the auto report, but he kind of went over the top. And uh, moreover, he, he had to acknowledge that we did say that they made some improvements since the waterfront tip. Sure. Um, uh, and, and, and you would agree with that then, right? Oh, yeah. We said that in the report. Yeah. Fair enough. Okay. All right. Yeah. Um, other other uh, cities and towns that have used this method of financing, um, uh, the, is it, is it simply the complexity of, of how this work is done that leads to the mistakes, or, is, or, is, or, or what is it, do you think? It is complex. Uh, it requires an attention to detail. It also requires consistency in the staff that you assign to this work, and that's one of the problems we found in the waterfront uh, TIF audit. Uh, Burlington, over the years, had a lot of turnover, and early in the in the process they didn't put into place the right internal controls so that if somebody left the next person would have a good roadmap so there's there's a lot of elements to this uh, they are a little complicated uh, they often have towns doing more capital projects at the same time than they might otherwise it's not uncommon for some of the towns to have different sources of money other state monies federal monies so forth so it's it, it is complicated and uh, 
Burlington is not the only town that's had problems, but most of the towns, the smaller towns, have done okay. Okay. Um, is this going? Is this is this a, a a growth issue? I mean, are are more and more towns and cities in Vermont going to use this method because of of how it uh, you know how how it interacts with the education fund? I don't think the towns particularly care about its uh, interaction with the education fund. I think they see it as a way to pay back debt incurred to do infrastructure without raising taxes on their own residents. That's, That's what I mean. Deal. Yeah, I mean, I mean yeah. it's, it's pretty fact, attractive, you know, right? I don't, know, I don't know about you, but I remember I, I moved here in the 80s, and I live in Burlington, and it wasn't uncommon that uh, successive administrations would go out to the people periodically and say, we think we need to invest a little bit more in parks or streets or sidewalks or wastewater, whatever it might be. This is before TIF. Do you voters and residents of Burlington approve of the mayor and the city council's plan? And if we do, then everybody accepts the responsibility to pay a little more in taxes. Right? Yep. That's not what this does. This, as I said before, gives the mayor and the town managers a chance to say it won't cost you anything. So what, that's what, one of the reasons towns like it. What do you? Yeah, oh, I'm sure. Um, uh, <laughs> but but the education fund is you know kind of the legislature's responsibility, right? Uh, is yeah. uh, um, uh, aren't they going to look at this with uh, with kind of a hairy eyeball? Well, some do. Uh, others, I should say, uh, in in advocating for it, say, look, when when the day is over, twenty years from now or 30, given all the towns that are doing it, uh, the Ed Fund, in theory, is is going to receive additional monies that they would not have except for this program. But that depends entirely on something, a decision made by VEPSI for each town at the outset. And that is that, but for, that the towns have to assert and, and attest that, but for this program, they would not have uh, the wherewithal to do the infrastructure, and they, they could not predict with any uh, validity that their grand list would grow without it. Well, that's kind of interesting because the, the Joint Fiscal Office has done some analysis of the towns that have TIF and has found that in most cases, these TIF districts do have some background growth rate of their own, some more than others. You know, Burlington is a, is a robust place for real estate and, and you know the, the grand list has been growing dramatically for what a hundred years sure. so and and that's true for other towns as well south burlington is a good example um you know but the kind of investments that are required to do some of the work that was done in south burlington where by the way they did a good job with their tiff there, there were no problems uh, in our audit report there uh, it's expensive and it's hard to get people to approve increases in their own taxes so this this program is just very appealing yeah uh, now that it makes certain it makes a, a fair amount of sense you can see how this would develop over time especially if it is um, you know a municipal officers job to get this stuff done right yeah Doug I do want to ask you um, uh, what the audits uh, as I understand it uh, for all TIF projects uh, have to have to happen um uh and and the uh, audits were begun in 2013 as i understand it um uh by the uh ordered by the legislature um uh, and uh is it is does it make a difference um uh whether uh it's a big city or a small city in terms of in terms of the accuracy of the reports getting done 
Well, it's interesting. Uh, Burlington's is so big and complex, and for some of the reasons I mentioned, they've had some challenges in record-keeping and, and tracking everything. Uh, the small towns have had some issues as well, but generally have done a little better. Of course, they didn't have the scope or complexity. The only other town that had a lot of big problems was, uh, or one significant big problem, was St. Albans. But the others, including Hartford, um, South Burlington, Winooski was a challenge because there were so many funding sources. I don't know whether you remember, but you know it's now been 20 years, and, and a lot of people, including successive governors and the legislature, all said, come on, we can do something important and generational in Winooski. And they did. And, you know, opinions differ about, you know, the aesthetics and whether it was a good thing or not. Uh, but they did. They did road work. They did a lot of construction. Uh, it was a big deal, a very big deal. But because of the various sources of money, I think it was a challenge for the city of Winooski. Uh, but they, they are just about at the end of their road. And they and I think, in fact, we are expected to, to audit them for the last time later this year. And I think they'll be fine. That's not a problem. Okay. Uh, South Burlington, as I said, did well. Um, you know, so and Barry had some comparatively minor issues. So you know, the, it's it's tough. It's it's time consuming. It's costly because of the interest costs of the debt. Um, so you know, it's up to other people, literally the legislature, to decide you know, the extent to which they want to continue this program or expand it. There have been requests to expand the program. Uh, statutes say that they can only have a certain number of TIF towns. Um, so. We'll see how, how it goes this year. There's always how, a discussion. Why, why is that? Um, a, a certain number of TIF towns. Um, is the, does, a, does a municipality have to do something to qualify? Well, they have to be approved by Pepsi. Aha, okay. Under All law. Right. But right. uh, the number, I think, was a, a recognition of the fact that more and more of these things means more and more cost to the Ed Fund. I mean, they're basically using the education fund as a bank. Admittedly, it's a big one. Yeah, I mean, it is a big one. It's a lot of money. But, you know, every dollar that's removed or that isn't sent to the Ed Fund in a given year has to be made up by somebody, and that's the rest of us. Yeah. Um, And um, uh, it it seems like uh, the rest of the state being on the hook for $8 million, um, that Burlington – I mean, it – it seems like there's something really wrong with that, and is is there anything to be done, or is it or or is it locked in and and the rest of the state is just stuck with it? No, it's not yet locked in. Uh, Vepsi has a decision to make. They uh, joined us in a request to the attorney general for an opinion about whether the statute allows it. That's one way to look at it because the statute is not entirely clear and is arguably silent about this. But what the city did, as I mentioned before, is get approval, as it was required to do, for a financing plan with Pepsi. And they did not mention the use of the premium approach to the general obligation bond to Pepsi. Uh, If they had, they probably would have, if they understood, they've done this before, that there are increased interest costs, and they could have predicted that. And Pepsi would have had a chance to say yay or nay. Uh, I think at this point what the city's going to do is go back to Pepsi and effectively ask them to uh, change the uh, financing plan retroactively, and we'll see how that goes. Is there a common series of mistakes that you find with, with TIF projects, whether it's Burlington or somewhere else? As I say, most of the towns do pretty well. I mean, there's really only a couple of questions. The one is we test uh, the extent to which they spent the money on the approved projects. Because they have to go to the voters and get approval. 
uh, and they also have to go to Betsy with a fairly specific plan for what they intend to do, whether it's uh, new streets, widened streets, new sidewalks, water, wastewater, whatever it might be, and, you know, BEPSI approves it. So the question for us in the first instance is, well, did they limit their spending to those projects or did they spend it on things that weren't approved? That's one. The other is, as the TIF district does, in fact, grow over time and the value of the properties increases, so the grand list increases, which gives the town a chance, not a chance, but actually should produce additional property tax revenues, um, are they collecting them and assigning them properly? Because some of those revenues were, uh, still have to go to the Ed Fund. The split is 75% to 25%. So they have to continue sending money to the Ed Fund, but they get to keep 75% of that to pay off debt and in some cases pay for related costs and the actual investments. So it's, a, it's an accounting procedure, basically. It's a compliance and, account and financial audit as much as anything else. That's not what we normally do. We normally do performance audits, and that's not what this is. So... Yeah. Um, uh, the uh, state attorney general's office seemed uh, rather disinterested in um, in uh, your request uh, to have to get an opinion to the point where uh, they have said, um, you know, this is uh, an ill-conceived idea. Um, uh, I mean, they're not here to talk well, about that, but, but why? Because they are required by law to provide opinions, and their predecessors for 10 years provided opinions upon request every time we asked. And if you don't mind, I'm going to read the one sentence, which is the re relevant statute. Okay. It's Title III, uh, Section 159. It says very clearly, the Attorney General shall advise the elective and appointive state officers on questions of law relating to their official duties and shall furnish a written opinion on such matters when so requested. I'm sure you know that when the legislature uses the word shall, there is no ambiguity. There's no discretion now on the part of the attorney general. Shall means you will, you must, you are obligated to do that. So, And, and her predecessors did that for 10 years, so I'm puzzled by their response, to be very honest. Well, um, uh, we'll see uh, if uh, they uh, might be interested in having that conversation. Um, in terms well, of finding conversation in court. Uh, well, yeah, I, I guess that's going to happen. And do you have a date for that? Uh, not for uh, a hearing, no. Uh, we are about, we, the attorney uh, who's agreed to do this work for me, without pay because the attorney general declined to let me hire an attorney, which is kind of interesting, and even went so far as to say that I didn't have the authority to sue. And that's kind of interesting when you think about it. The statute creates a right for services from the attorney general's office. She said, no, we're not going to give you those services. So. If they say no, then what does that mean if I can't go to court? I have no remedy. That would make the statute mean nothing. That can't have been the legislature's intent. Furthermore, it means that if the attorney general is obligated to provide the service and refuses to do so and can't be sued, then she's not accountable. That's not the way democracy is supposed to work. Hmm. Um, I do want to ask you um, uh, if if it would be better and more simpler if if municipalities didn't use TIF projects and if a, if a municipality wants to uh, upgrade its uh, facilities, streets, sidewalks, etc., would it just be better to do regular old bonds? That's one option, but the other is the state could, and, and I think might have missed an opportunity with all the federal money that came through, the state could create a revolving loan fund that could be managed by VITA. Yeah. That's what they do. Vita is essentially a bank. And I think if smart people got into a room, they could figure a way to uh, reduce the interest costs and save cities a lot of money and keep the money here. Uh, but they haven't. nobody has yet 
you know, entertained that idea or others like it, but I think that's where we should go. That's just my opinion. All right. Well, Doug, uh, thank you so much for joining us. That's about all the time we've got. Um, Doug Hoffer is the State Auditor of Accounts um, and the uh, uh, for the State of Vermont, and we appreciate his time very much. This is Vermont Viewpoint on WDEV. 